Ms. Elizabeth Yor, you've been involved in many high-profile cases and investigations, such as the Jerry Sandusky case, the Catholic Church abuse scandal, the Jeffrey Epstein case. You've testified before Congress and the United Nations on issues related to child trafficking, exploitation, and abuse. You've been a passionate and fearless voice for the most vulnerable victims in our society. You've done work as a general counsel for the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children and so many other things. So in regards to this, have we lost this sense of the sacred? What are some of the things that come to your mind in relation to the work you've done in, on, in, in the most recent years? Well, thank you, David. It's such an honor to be with you. Um, as I told you, I was absolutely intrigued by your suggestion of the topic of uh, the sacred. Um, the sacred is seldom, if ever, discussed in our culture anymore. Um, I you know, believe that the two sides of the same coin are innocence and sacred, and we've lost both of them. Um, surely, our Catholic Church has been robbed of the sacred liturgy. Um, we've lost devotion to the sacred heart of Jesus. Um, most you know, Catholic quotes about the sacred refer to the ultimate in sacred, which is the sacred heart of Jesus. Um, and you know, I want to start off with a beautiful quote from John Henry Newman. Uh, because I think it really just kind of set the stage for what we're going to talk about. And he says, God has created me to do him some definite service. He has committed some work to me, which he has not committed to another. I have a mission. I never may know it in this life, but I shall be told it in the next. I have a part in a great work. I am a link in a chain, a bond of connection between two persons. He has not created me for naught. I shall do good. I shall do his work. I shall be an angel of peace, a preacher of truth in my own place while not intending it. If I do but keep his commandments and serve him in my calling. Um, I, love, I love that quote. And I think simply said, it's what we are is God's gift to us. What we become is our gift to God. And um, the sacred, I think, is what is, we all know that we have the divine spark of life. We're children of God. Um, and sacred is certainly what our church has um, for the last 2,000 years raised up as um, sacred liturgy, sacred church. Um, you walk into a you know, neo-Gothic or Gothic cathedral. Um, you, I'm sure, have been to many in Europe. Um, and when you walk in, you're immediately overwhelmed with um, all the senses of the smell of burning candles, of incense, looking up to the magnificent, sacred, beautiful um, windows, stained glass windows, um, the light of the sun shining through the windows, the magnificent art. All that, in my mind, is what is sacred, and it is transcendent, and you know, the, the brilliant, you know, illiterate, Masons who built those magnificent edifices that are still standing understood that in looking up, 
to the art, to the sacred, is where we are in touch with the divine. And, um, you know, my grandmothers, my two, both my Irish grandmothers used to say, is nothing sacred anymore? <laughs> you know, and, and, you know, that was a long time ago, David. Can you imagine what they're saying now to us? Um, and, you know, I sadly feel that the church really has lost its veil of the sacred um, during the clergy abuse scandal. Um, a child molestation mocks, eradicates the sacred. Um, I don't know when that all this has really started. I think it's been a gradual process um, because when we lose the sacred, we lose innocence. And um, the devout piety, um, devotion has been now erased from the sacred liturgy. And um, because because of this close relationship between the sacred and innocence, um, our vows are sacred. And look what modernity has done to our ma marriage vows. Um, and um, so I think, you know, there is a reversion back to the sacred gradually. I think that's what we're seeing with the traditional Latin mass um, returning um, to um, and being so popular, especially being embraced by the young people. I, I kind of believe that whether it's said or not said, what they're seeing in the Latin mass is a longing for the sacred, is a longing for the transcendent. And that is not present in the Novus Ordo. Um, it's not present in the Novus Ordo music. Um, in, in the actual liturgy itself. I mean, obviously, there, very, there can be some very pious Novus Ordo masses. Um, but generally, I think we have lost that. And that's why I'm, you know, so troubled by uh, Francis suppressing the Latin mass around the world. Um, that's why I'm so I was so troubled by the closing of all the churches. And because what I realized when all of the churches were closed and the mandate for the um, jab was imposed, you know, coming from on high, from the Vatican, from the vicar of Christ, although he no longer claims he's the vicar of Christ, is that it's very hard in this age of the Internet to, without church, to attach yourself to anything sacred. Um, and so for that reason, it becomes very banal, um, sterile, um, an internet mass, um, internet you know, prayers. Um, you really have to create, and I don't like this word, but I'm gonna say it anyway, you really have to create your sacred space at home you know, by, by creating a beautiful um, corner where you have your candles, your, um, your pictures, your statues, your sacramentals, um, that, and whether, you know, whether the churches are closed or open, I think everybody should have that in their home. Um, holy water, all those things are the sacred tools of our, um, liturgy. And, um, so that's, you know, that's that's kind of as the basis of my belief of the importance of sacred, how we've lost it and how we have to reclaim it first and foremost. And, you know, reclaiming the sacred in our lives is really reclaiming Jesus Christ and and imposing in our lives, you know, that innocence, that purity, that sacred 
um, environment where we can grow and thrive and be closer to God and be closer, as Henry Newman said, to his mission and purpose um, in life. Um, what is that mission? And without the transcendent in our lives, it's very difficult, I think, to um, find it. And, and I must say, you know, in my experience with clergy abuse, especially cases and investigations, um, the the violation of innocence of children was so heinous um, was so they were because they were robbed not only of their innocence, but they were robbed of their faith that because a priest was molesting these generally young boys. And so many of them talked to me about, you know, losing their faith, which meant so much to them. And because many of the molesters would say, you know, God wants me to do this. God's blessing this. Um, I mean, it's just, it's horrendous. So it was a very difficult time for me to remain in you know, close to my faith while learning what was actually, you know, the, the veil had been pulled back. Um, learning what, what had been going on for generations in the church. Um, and I, you know, and I believe that at the heart of this was um, not the protection of children, not the protection of innocence, not the protection of the sacred. Um, obviously, the devil and evil infiltrated the church. Um, and however he did that in his own mysterious, diabolical way, um, it was... You know, and it wasn't just the victims of clergy abuse that left the church. It was their siblings. It was their aunts and uncles. It was their grandparents and parents. Um, it was a masterful stroke by the devil. And um, so what I learned, what I learned, did not expect to learn, um, is that we need to watch and guard and protect our church as if we are guarding and protecting our family. That anything that we see that our instincts tell us is not right, whether it's words or actions, we need to speak up. As a parent, you wouldn't ignore improper behavior or conduct of your children. Um, as Catholics, as children, you know, we're warriors. With our confirmation sacrament, warriors for Christ, we must speak up. And so as a result of um, investigating clergy abuse for six to eight years and then for another 20 years, um, I became absolutely intent on examining and watching what was going on in the church. Because frankly, frankly, you know, I knew a number of these priests, you know, young men, old men would come in and tell me what priests had abused them. You know, I grew up in Chicago, you know, the Catholic community, although it's very large, it's very small um, and everybody knows each other. Um, and so there there is a part of all of us, you know, that I should have said something or should have been attuned to what was going on um, had I known. Um, so I resolved that. From there on, I would become absolutely um, insistent on examining what was happening in the church. Fast forward to November of 2013. 
um, a new pope, only six months he had been pope, and he was talking about human trafficking, an issue that I had been involved in and understood, talk about the depth of depravity, the loss of innocence um, from the high levels of the government um, to, you know, to all people were involved in it, um, men and women, by the way. And so I was excited to go to the Vatican. And as Pope Francis <laughs> says, there's a God of surprises waiting for me. You know, I went into the Vatican thinking that I was going to hear about evil, you know, and the depth of evil and how the Catholic Church must be the force for good, must be that obstacle in a society that is going downhill fast. Um, and instead, I heard about climate change. I was in this small conference with 80 people from around the world in the heart of the Vatican, right next to the Vatican Gardens. Um, radicals from the Obama administration were invited, radical NGOs, UN people. Um, and I, and I was, it was, it was such um, an experience of my, my soul was rattled because I, you know, I kept on saying, I'm in the Vatican. What, why, what am I hearing here? This isn't the Catholic church. And, and I thought, well, it must be me. There must be something wrong with me because my my gut was telling me something was wrong, but here I was in the Vatican. Um, and a friend, fortunately, a friend from the United States was there who turned to me halfway through and said, are we the only pro-lifers here? Uh-huh. And then I knew I wasn't crazy. Um, and I met Pope Francis, not in, you know, a quick line handshake, but he was in our presence in this small group for about 20 minutes. And I observed him. And again, I was waiting for that spiritual soul to soul connection. I shook his hand. I wasn't feeling it. I was watching him very closely um, and I didn't sense it. And again, I'm looking at this man dressed in white you know, who represents everything that I've been taught, you know, throughout my, you know, life as a, you know, Catholic, you know, 12 years of Catholic school, um, cradle Catholic. And I was, I just was discombobulated is all I could say. And again, I thought, well, I got to get myself to confession. It's my soul, you know, that's not right with the Lord. Um, I came back to Chicago, but on the plane back from Rome, I resolved that I was going to watch closely what was going on in the Vatican, what Francis was saying, um, who he was surrounding himself with. I had already been very concerned, and this is to one of the cases that I was involved in, that on the loggia on March 13th, 2013, on the loggia with uh, Francis was Cardinal Godfrey Deniels of Belgium, a man that I knew was um, a predator protector at the very least, um, that there, um, that a case that I had been involved in um, representing and helping the parents, the Julian Melissa case, a famous case that really gripped all of Europe, where ultimately um, eight girls, six girls um, uh, were abducted, four were murdered by a um, pedophile 
pedophile ring that started off in Belgium. And there was a great amount of uh, controversy and media responding, uh, involving this case. Um, two little eight-year-old girls who had been abducted right off of the street just disappeared, like you know Adam Walsh and all the other children that we know, Mag Megan Kanka, um, all the children we know in, in the United States. You know the fame, sadly, the famous children, and um, they were held by this uh, predator, pedophile, um, and abused for nine months and then finally um, were killed. Uh, their autopsy reports and police reports ended up in Cardinal Daniil's files. Um, and they're um, to my horror. Um, and here he was on the loggia, smiling like a Cheshire cat, one of the St. Gallen Mafia, you know, the St. Gallen Mafia, uh, Father Charles Murr has said that they are all Freemasons. You may know more, certainly more than I do about that. Um, and so that was a signal to me. And it only got worse, of course, from them. That was a signal to me that this pontificate needed to be watched very closely. Um, and so here I am 10 years later um, examining um, the pedophiles that he has surrounded himself with, Francis has, the pedophile protectors that he has, um, he has protected many of the worst of the worst. Um, and, um, and of course, <laughs> of course, human trafficking was only the hook um, that they, that he used to invite the United Nations into the Vatican, invite Jeffrey Sachs, the head of the UN Sustainable Development Goals, into the Vatican 30 times. Um, that was the hook to endorse the UN Sustainable Development Goals by the Vatican. Um, and those goals are, you know, I'm just going to give you the shortened version. Those goals, I believe, are the New World Order Ten Commandments. Those goals include abortion, include contraception, include um, the worst of the worst of the glo tyrannical global agenda. Um, and as everybody knows, Pope Francis addressed the UN and um, and solidified the support of the Vatican with the UN Sustainable Development Goals, and then went on to um, endorse the Paris Climate Treaty. Um, all these things, David, you know, I might add, I had no interest um, initially or understanding or knowledge about the UN Sustainable Development Goals. I learned about it because I felt it was very important um, to understand what's going on in the Vatican. Pope Francis invited to the Vatican. And I joked about this when, you know, when I went to the Vatican that, you know, Paul Ehrlich, for God's sakes, well, the author of The Population Bomb, which in 1969 was a bestseller, talking about the world is coming to an end as the world is overpopulated. Of course, all those predictions never came true. Paul Ehrlich, at 90 years old, was invited to speak at the Vatican. And, you know, I'm trying to sound the alarm that the, the enemies of the Catholic Church and everything we stand for 
are the experts that are being embraced by this pontificate. Um, I did return to the Vatican, by the way, um, with seven of the most brilliant scientists in the world, men who put men on the moon, um, MIT geologist, the world's greatest climatologist, all these men um, in 2015, in April of 2015, came to the Vatican. I accompanied them because I was following what was going on in the Vatican. And they were pleading with Pope Francis to listen to them, the other side of the climate argument. You know, he, he's about dialogue, right? And what is dialogue? Two sides discussing opposite opinions um, and begging him to list that the climate change is a hoax. I mean, these men were so brilliant. David, I would sit with them, you know, it, at dinner, you know, having pasta with them in Roman restaurants. They, they, they were, and even among themselves, they had disagreements, um, but they were shocked and extremely troubled because the Vatican had embraced this globalist agenda, which they knew because they're brilliant and they've studied it. And also have suffered, by the way, lost all their funding because they followed the truth and where the evidence is. Um, so there's, you know, a lot has been going on with respect to the, you know, the Vatican. I'm personally most troubled. There's not, you know, there, it's like, where do you point to what is most troubling? Um, my concern is when he said, who am I to judge? That was kind of a red line in the sand. Um, the support of the UN Sustainable Development Goals was another red line in the sand. The Pachamama um, presentation during the Amazon Synod was another line in the sand. And now we're coming to the um, Synod on Synodality coming up in October. And... I have looked at the language in the um, Instrumentum Laboris, which is a fancy a Latin word for saying it's a working document. This is what they're going to base their decisions on. And um, my my concern is that um, this is this is what is said, and I would suggest people look at Instrumentum Laboris. It's in the Vatican website. It's B1.2, section six. It's just two short paragraphs I'm going to read because I think it's important to discuss because this is at the heart of what is sacred and what is innocent, right? This is at the heart of it. And this is coming at the most important um, moral teachings of our church. Here it is. Quote, how can we create spaces where those who feel hurt by the church and unwelcome by the community feel recognized, received free to ask questions and not judged. Reminiscent of who am I to judge? It goes on. In light of the post-synodal apostolic exhortation, Amoris Laetitia, what concrete steps are needed to welcome those who feel excluded from the church because of their status or sexuality? For example, this is also included, remarried divorcees, people in 
polygamous marriages, LGBTQ plus people, and etc. End quote. Now, you know, now that I now that I've studied what they say, believe them. Um, what does these concrete steps look like, folks? I mean, I'm going to give you a heads up. What are the concrete steps once this instrumentum laboris is operational and approved by Francis? Um, let's look at what this is going to do, because after all, this is really the bottom line. I call it the synod on sin or the synod on um, sodomy. Um, this is what's really at the heart of this papacy. This is also at the heart of where I believe Francis was placed in this position. Um, these concrete steps. Okay. The Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. Y'all remember those? The drag queens in, at the Los Angeles Dodgers game? Now, they're going to have to, because of inclusivity, they're going to have to be welcomed at masses or teaching in Catholic schools. The curriculum in Catholic schools must reflect inclusion. Homilies that call you haters because you don't want to include these LGBT activists. Now, this is an activist, radical Marxist ideology. That's what it is. It's a, it's a radical agenda driven by a political movement. And we now know this, the same movement with a scalpel that has killed 65 million preborn babies. Now, with the same scalpel, they are going to neuter, defertilize hundreds of thousands, if not millions of confused children and young people, permanently eradicating their fertility and causing a lifetime of harm, pain, and suffering. That's what those people who the uh, fathers of the Synod want to include. This is, this is the globalist agenda of depopulation. That's all it is. And it's dressed up in inclusion. It's dressed up in mercy, right? It's dressed up in dialogue. But that is what is going to be done. As if, you know, as if if you survived abortion in this modern world, then we're going to now, next step is to impose this radical gender bending ideology. Um, and so, you know, it's, I'm trying to wake up people um, that, that are just not watching this. And this is why, this is why we must watch what's going on in the church like a hawk. We must watch it like a hawk and push back and protest. And that means protesting in the public square. That means writing your bishop. That means talking to your pastor. None of us know what the impact of what we do is. We have no idea. We will at the end of our lives when we meet our Lord. But I, I do believe, David, that this time is a time of testing for us. How much did you love my church? Our Lord may ask us when we meet him in heaven, how much did you fight for her? Um, and, you know, if we say, oh, it's uncomfortable, or I'd be laughed at, or I'd be called a hater, or, you know, I wanted to be merciful. Um, you know, it's truth is our lodestar, truth, innocence, and the sacred are our lodestar. And that's why 
um, your title, your theme today is so important, is to reclaim the sacred. And once you've reclaimed the sacred, there's there's no going back. You cannot tolerate. You can't tolerate um, this uh, section 6B of the Instrumentum Labor. So that's kind of my overall at the moment um, thought on on the sacred and kind of where we are at this moment in time. A couple of things you said, Ms. Elizabeth, you're, you had said you made a dichotomy, a distinction between those who are looking up versus those who are looking at self. You, some of the images you use when you said looking up, you use the liturgy, um, you use the old Roman nest of the Gothic cathedrals. Um, and I think a lot of people would get that. And I think most people would probably agree that in society today, we just don't look up. We're, we're looking at self. And then you kind of impose that language on what's going on with the church today, with, with Francis and the Senate. They're not looking up. They're just kind of looking at themselves, looking at the world. But another thing you said, though, that I wanted you to get some more feedback on was that you a couple of times you just called this a robbery. You said it was a robbery. You said they robbed our sac- robbed us of our sacred liturgy. They robbed us of some of our devotions, such as the sacred heart. And then you use that same term robbery. You oppose that on what they what was done with innocence and with children, robbing them of their faith and their their innocence. Robbery is something. I think that's a very Extreme word. I've I've been robbed. I mean, my house had been broken into, and I didn't want to sleep back there. And I went to my house, and it was just broken into. And I, I went and slept in a parking lot that night, um, and I felt safer there, sleeping in a, a parking lot of a hospital. I just didn't. Robbery is an intense. It's invasive. Um, somebody's taking something from you that that that's yours. Um, but if someone's being robbed, because you commented about. People need to watch like hawks. Look what's going on in the church. If this is a robbery, what should people do when they're being robbed? I mean, in, in the world, we maybe we call the police. Maybe if we have a gun, we might, you know, somebody's in my property. I might take some action with a gun or a bat, something. If the church is being robbed, everyone should know about this, right? Yeah, and... It's a violation, isn't it? It's a violation of our God-given right. Um, you know, every one of the purposes of innocence in in childhood is to allow a child to grow free of complex, confusing issues that affect adults, like sex. You allow the imagination of a child to grow and thrive in nature, in play, in learning. Um, And they have been robbed of that. They've robbed of it. You know, the average age of of children who see pornography on the internet is eight years old. Um, Yeah. Any, Any child who has been sexually abused, whether by a priest um, or any adult, is robbed of that innocence. It takes over their brain. It There's no room for anything else. While they may put that horrible memory in a box and lock it, that memory keeps coming out 
at times when they don't anticipate it to come out and befouls their life, their happiness. Um, and so, um, so it's so important to fight back against this um, violation, this robbery of both our faith and what's beautiful. I mean, 2000 years, what's been beautiful. I mean, I remember, David, I remember it was almost like they turned the lights off between, you know, pre-Vatican II and the imposition of the new mat, new or order, the new order mass. Um, and it, w- it was just the nuns, the habits go off. The, all of a sudden, our pastor was gone. All of a sudden, the priestly. I mean, it was just chaos. We had, and I, and my parish was a, um, a neo-Gothic cathedral. And, you know, they stopped this, I don't know, 51 pipe organ from playing anymore. Now we had, you know, the microphones and the guitars and the loud blaring music in the front on the altar, the altar rail, magnificent altar rail. On the flapping felt banners now put onto the rafters and buttresses. I mean, it was so radical. And I remember my dad, you know, trying to figure out what what just happened. You know, because there was no there's no internet internet. There's no explanation. It just there was a radical ripping as if you're robbed. You know, all of your safety, all of your protection, um, all of what you consider sacred has now been violated. Um, And so it's taken us, what, 70 years to kind of recognize, oh, that's what was going on in Vatican II. Oh, now we know about Bugnini and the Freemasons. Oh, now... Why weren't we told any of that? We were just told this is an agiomormentum, the upgrading, upgrading of updating of of the mass and of the religion. Um, And okay, all right, but I don't like it. It doesn't feel right. It's not sacred anymore, right? Um, And um, so, I mean. Uh, so it, it's a violation, and, and that's why, that's why we need Catholics to police the faith, right? That's, I mean, you just say you would call the police, right, if if you're robbed. Well, you know, it's it's time that we step up and be soldiers and policemen for our faith to fight back um, and leave the results to the good Lord. Um, and, you know, as a lawyer, you, you, you want to do certain things and expect a certain result. I've learned what the church is to, you know, with prayer, um, with, you know, the Blessed Mother through the rosary, um, going to the ma- going to mass and sacrament and sacraments. You get the inspiration to do what you need to do. Um, and so you, you almost get your battle plans. Right. I mean, that's um, and, and God puts people you and I know puts people together. Um, so that we can form alliances. Um, but this is, you know, I, I just, this is a robbery. And what's happening um, in the Vatican, you know, I know about prophecy. Um, I, I'm not one of the beliefs to say, well, it's prophecy, it's going to happen anyway. So just, you know, don't say anything. Uh, you know, that's not my nature. Um, and, you know, the, the Irish always say, you know, forgive, but never forget. You know, there are times when you, know, you never forgive and you never forget. Um, so 
uh, I feel compelled to wake up Catholics um, who are, you know, people look at me like I'm crazy. Well, isn't Pope Francis, you know, the nicest guy, so merciful? You know, it's, you know, David, it's as if we stopped being critical thinkers using our God-given discernment to look beyond the facade, pull back the curtain. What does he mean by merciful? What does he mean? You know, wh what are these terms? Um, he's beloved by the mainstream media, which to me is a giveaway, you know. I mean, that's, that's, um, so, but it's, you know, it's not Francis, it's all the people he's brought into power, not just Francis, brought into power, that this is their moment in time. And, you know, El Gore, God bless him, El Gore said, you know, Pope Francis is the moral voice of the environmental movement. And, you know, the climate change movement, David, has been looking for a moral voice for 30 years. It wasn't going to be Al Gore and it wasn't going to be Leo DiCaprio. But lo and behold, it's, you know, Jorge Mario Bergoglio, um, which uh, so I would encourage people. This is what I would encourage. If, you know, if climate, if you're concerned about climate, your gut tells you it's a hoax. There are lots of resources to study truthful, educated, thoughtful um, men and women, Judith Curry, Patrick Moore, who was the founder of Greenpeace. Go on YouTube. Look at Patrick Moore, what he is saying about the climate change movement. Go to the Heartland Institute, Mark Marano um, at the Climate Depot. Just educate yourself. You don't have to be a scientist, but just educate yourself on what this movement is really about, because it is a destructive um, uh, ideology that has at its heart, I believe, um, the deindustrialization de uh, de of the West, um, the demoralization of the West, and um, also, most importantly, the depopulation of the West. Um, and uh, so if it's climate change that you, you know, like I'm not, I have no idea who to believe on this, start educating, you know, one hour a day. All this information, thank God, still on the internet, get it while you can, um, really become educated in this issue. Become educated if it's, you know, Freemasonry, if it's if it's what happened during Vatican II, there's enormous, re many, many, Michael Davies, many resources on what happened during um, Vatican II. Charles Moore's book, um, a 33, Murder in the 33 Degree, it's a wonderful book about what happened during Vatican II. Um, and, you know, so there's lots of resources for people, um, but it's really important because we have a, a generation of kids that have been indoctrinated um, in first they, they've lost their innocence they've been indoctrinated in this Marxist ide ideology they don't understand you know the um, how clever they are in using linguistics using language the in lingo that um, uh, that persuades, that lies, um, and um, 
And so people just, it, it's going to require some work. Um, and, you know, and I believe that this is really, it's spiritual work. It's spiritual work. Um, and I've, you know, and I, I'm, I'm sure like you, you know, sometimes you have those books that fall off the shelf in the library or, you know, the books that somebody tells you to read and you go, that's the, the book I need to read it right now. You know, all of a sudden it's just there. Um, be open to that, right? I mean, because there's, um, and I'll show you, oh, there's a book called The Way of the Lamb, which um, talks very much, it's by John Sayward, S-A-W-A-R-D. It's a little book. And it talks precisely, David, about your topic, innocence and the sacred. And all the um, men and women of literature and saints, by the way, um, the little the little flower, St. Therese, um, all the 18th century men and women of literature who um, really talked about the importance of innocence vis-a-vis -vis the Catholic faith. Um, and the sacred. Um, it's for me, it was in talking about the importance of the child. Jesus Christ came as a baby. He didn't all of a sudden appear as a 30 year old man. He came as a baby. Um, and Christianity has been always about the Savior in the stable. Um, and it's um, that is. You know, the the innocence and the protection of children is what is at the basis of our religion. Um, you know, they, they say there's, you know, the 20th century has been the war on the child. And it's only the Catholic Church that is going to be that voice against abortion, against the mutilation of children. Um, it's only the Catholic Church. All the other religions are falling by the wayside, falling under the, you know, brutal arm of the tyrannical new world order. Um, and that's why it's so important that we have to just dig our heels in and start speaking truth to power and leave the results to the good Lord. Elizabeth, you you wonderfully given us a master class on the loss of the sacred, some of the things we lost along the way and how to reclaim it. But I have one more question for you, if, if I may. And it just concerns, because you, you've given us a lot of information about the church. And I was wondering if you could comment just on secular society just for a moment, because I think one way by which I think we're robbed of the sense of the sacred in society, I think we've been distracted. And I think corporations, media, government does a wonderful job distracting us. One way by which I think they distract us is by telling us that there's some sort of sacrament, you know, that it comes along every two to four years. That if you just go to the sacrament of the Balibu, if you can change your destination, if you just go there and vote how we tell you to, then you can, your, your destination has changed. And, and that, that's what's sacred. How we tell you to vote, your your political leaders are sort of like demigods. This, it's this thing, but, and I believe this for a long time, and that this idea of, of a right to vote, but then when questions came up in 2020 about, and I had questions about, well, what votes were tallied, which ones weren't tallied, I was told to just shut up and, and go away. Hey, well, we're going to get rid of your YouTube channel for a while. And then the whole mask and vax thing, I was told, well, I have a right to vote. That's what 
you know, that's how I changed my destination. That's how I changed my life, you know, this sacrament. But then I didn't have a vote when they told me to take a vax. They told me to wear a mask. So it was this confusing message with this right to vote. And it just didn't seem, and I realized this ballot booth thing isn't really ordered to the sacred. It, I, there's nothing I can do in there that's, you know, changes how people sense the sacred or I, I can't make the world sense the sacred just by one vote. But you're active in, um, in, in this sphere more than I am. And I was wondering, could you give some response to this? Like, how should Catholics engage in the public space, especially in this regard to recovering the sense of the sacred? Is there hope that republics like ours, can we elect leaders that would care about the sacred? Well, um, a couple of things. There's, I mean, with respect to corporate, you've seen people voting with their feet. Bud Light is no more. Uh, Target is you know having a huge horrible downturn including there's lawsuits against target by sh- shareholders Kohl's, same way so the people are pushing back on the corporate and, and the corporate voice has been very powerful that's a great sign but david i come from chicago you know the old saying is vote early and often in chicago so for me to hear we're not supposed to question elections i mean oh, For those that don't know, all of us in Chicago know that 100,000 votes for JFK pushed him over the winning line. He won because, you know, Richard J. Daley, God rest his soul, found 100,000 votes. Um, So please, uh, you know, I've worked in campaigns and on Election Day, you you know, this is way back when. So don't tell me all of a sudden that, you know, we can't question votes um, when we're seeing, you know, the tallies go up and down, back and forth. I mean, it's just so I mean, again, they're going to use government to weaponize your ideas against your ideas. Um, And it's very important. You know, there's a lot of Catholics in public office, not Catholics we'd be proud of. Right. I I often say, you know, that's because, you know, the nuns educated a lot of leaders, didn't they? You know, the you know, 65 million or whatever it was Catholics in the United States. Many were educated in Catholic schools, um, you know, and, you know, the Nancy Pelosi's, the Dick Durbin's, all the rest of them, um, Joe Biden. Um, but of course, they weren't properly catechized. Um, and um, but they they were taught to be leaders. Well, those of us that now are continuing that catechism and, you know, be, we can never we can never plumb the depth of our religion. There's so many beautiful every day you, you learn about a new saint, a new devotion. I mean, it's just it's incredible. Um, but the public square is very important. And it's. Um, because if we don't have free elections, our democracy, representative democracy is over. It's over. Um, and so this kind of Herculean battle we're in right now um, is an important one. Um, and using the FBI and the forces of the judiciary against people who are using their freedom of you know, speaking their freedom of religion, um, those those gifts are not from the government. Those gifts are from God. We know those rights are from God. And it's important to exercise those gifts um, from God. And um, so we need more people in public life 
who are, you know, God knows, and, and I think we need to recognize it is, it is in many respects a martyrdom. Um, if you do it right, if you're honest, um, you, you've got to fight for truth, for the babies, um, for the innocent. You have to battle an ideology that's going to call you a hater. Every name in the book, hater, racist, homophobe, they, they, they've just, and so you have to have thick skin. Um, and there's a, so I, I'm absolutely convinced that we need Catholics in the public square to fight these fights. It's, you know, my evangelical friends will say to me, Liz, you know, it's a Catholic church that's always been the bulwark, you know, the obstacle to, you know, to, on the front lines in abortion, on the front lines on all these issues. They have relied on us. Um, and, and I think there's also something else that's very important. We have to stop thinking and waiting for our Catholic leaders, the hierarchy, to make the move to lead. They're not going to lead. They're, you know, Fulton Sheen said it's going to be the laity, right? Um, we, David, you and I know, right? It's, it is going to be the laity. So we have to stop waiting, praying, and hoping that, you know, Cardinal so-and-so will make a move or say something. Not going to happen. Um, and if we have one, you know, one cardinal, one bishop, that's a gift. Thank you, Jesus. Pray for that um, that hierarchy. But it's got to be us. It's got to be us. And the rest of the world is looking at America. They're looking to us to lead the way. And if it's politics or if it is like Father Peyton, the, fam you know, the family that prays together stays together, um, yeah. filling stadiums with hundreds of, of thousands of people saying the rosary, um, pilgrimages, processions, we have got to do it. We've got to take the um, prayer life into the public square. Um, I have a friend, I have a great friend. You've probably seen the video with John Hen on John Henry Weston. Her name's Christine Kangat. She's a character. But her calling is she carries rosaries with her. She travels all over the world and all over the country. And everywhere she goes, she's giving out rosaries. And she was at a um, wonderful event um, in California with Jeff Bezos, uh, the founder of the Amazon, as well as uh, I think he's the owner of the Washington Post. She goes up to Jeff. She gives him a rosary. And says, you know, I'm praying for you, Jeff. This is how you say the rosary. He couldn't have been nicer to her. And everybody's like, whoa, whoa. And to know Christine, no, she can get away with that. Um, but we've been shy, haven't we? We've been reticent to share the faith. I was on the same plane with, with Christine. And she gave, she gave um, a Catholic book, pamphlet, to the, um, she was sitting ahead of me, to the flight attendant who came back to me. This is from your friend in 9B. She wants you to read this. I mean, she, he, she was evangelizing him more than she was evangelizing, but she was using me to evangelize. And then he came back at the end of the flight with another little pamphlet. Of course, you knew I had them both, but it was, but, but it's that kind of joy 
in evangelizing. I think she gave Ronnie Wood of the Rolling Stones a rosary. She, you, sh- you should see her walking down, you know, O'Hare Airport with you know, giving rosaries out. And, you know, it's, it's a little like what I've noticed when I've been in airports with um, nuns who are in habits. And people mm-hmm. approach nuns saying, sister, you know, I had nuns. I love, they taught me in school. I love nuns. Or I had a great aunt who was a nun. There's just like magnets, right? Um, those are the yeah. kinds of things both that we've got to start doing. You know, if politics isn't your thing, if public speaking isn't, um, there are lots of avenues of writing letters to your bishop, writing letters and calling the headquarters of Target. All those things. Don't underestimate. You know, I've worked in media. You don't underestimate a phone call to a corporation. It makes a huge impact. Um, Oprah had the Dominican nuns of Mother Mary of the Eucharist from Ann Arbor on her show. Yeah. And I, I had just come back from Africa and I turned on the TV and said, what are these Dominican nuns? I was educated by Dominican nuns doing an Oprah show. And I could tell, you know, they're just lovely, joyful, smart as whip, you know, just wonderful. And of course, David, I'm waiting for the daily rushes, you know, what are the Nielsen ratings? Because, you know, media, you know, if the, if the ratings are good, you know, they're going to invite them back. It's Well, not only were the ratings through the roof, the biggest show ever. But, you know, the the response from the public, you know, that is, and, you know, thank you to Oprah, the nuns came back, same thing happened, great. It's, um, and of course, the nuns were just, you know, professing the beauty of the faith on the show, not holding back at all. Um, just mm. you know, joyful, senses of humor, warm, loving, um, what many of us had experienced. And so those are the kinds of moments in time when we have an opportunity to evangelize the beautiful faith. And, um, and I think of Mark Hawk, you know, the father of seven, who um, the pro-life father who was, um, you know, there was, you know, <laughs> A huge, you know, army of FBI agents, you know, coming to his house at five in the morning, much like, you know, the SS banging on the door with long arm rifles um, demanding his arrest. Um, It just that to me was a real that was a red line for me, you know, as a as a as not only a Catholic pro-lifer, but also as an American citizen. And um, and of course, he beat his charges, federal charges. Nobody beats federal charges in federal court. He he won, and now he's running for Congress. Um, so, you know, God plucked him, put him in this situation. Um, he's a man who's just defending his son in front of an abortion clinic um, from a bully um, and faced, you know, 11 years in, in prison, you know, with the charges that they threw at him. Um, but he had faith. Um and um, so, th- you know, those are kind of the individuals that I look to that I think are going to be the models and examples for all of us going forward. Um, obviously, it takes steely resolve. Um, obviously, you know, you've got to hold the hand of our Lord and the Blessed Mother when you you venture out into these events. Many times you're not even, you're not even knowing that you're venturing into dangerous territory. Um, but, you know, I'm a great believer in the rosary. 
um, to return families to saying the rosary. Um, once, you know, 15 minutes in the morning, I suggest 15 minutes at night. Um, it, you can find 30 minutes in the day to say the rosary. Your life will be transformed. Um, transformed. It's, you know, just sit back and watch the sanctifying grace, the direction that our Lord and his mother will give you and protection. Um, so, I mean, that's kind of my political angle. You know, I, I've said I've been weaned on politics growing up in Chicago. Um, so I understand the importance of the political sphere. Um, and so I would encourage good Catholics um, to really jump in Um you know, it's it's a work of mercy, no, no doubt, um, but one that our beautiful country needs and deserves. Um, and you know what? It's a form of evangelization, isn't it? You know, um, and so anyway, so that's kind of my thoughts on the political sphere. Miss Elizabeth Yor, thank you for this catechesis and instruction on returning to the sacred. Thank you. Thank you, David. It's been an honor to be with you. It's something I've wanted to do a long time ago. And so happy to meet you both in person and now today. <laughs>